Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Credera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are meant to be fun, lighthearted, and, well, frankly, opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today, we're going to be talking about a variety of things, but the core of it is how do we code faster? The world is being consumed by software. It's everywhere. It's on our phones. It's in our cards. It's in our toasters. In fact, just the other day, I was late to a meeting because my car was updating. That was a new thing for me. I don't know if you've experienced that yet, but just wait. It's coming. I think the challenge then for companies as they find more and more ways to integrate software to their businesses is how do we do that faster, better, higher quality, and more efficiently, and of course, more securely at the end of the day as well. There's a lot of different techniques out there uh, from low code to IDEs to sort of some AI powered stuff that we're going to talk about today. With us, as always, is Jason Goth, our Chief Technology Officer. Welcome, Jason. Happy Friday. (laughs) It is our Friday today, that's right. And uh, joining us today actually is a special treat. It's Cody Case, a partner here in Dallas and our market lead, in fact. Welcome, Cody. Thank you. Good afternoon. So just to get started, I would love to start with IDEs, yeah? These things are used by software developers, a lot of software, like 80-ish percent of software developers use some form of an IDE, whether it be desktop or whether it be a standalone true IDE. I'm curious, just just to level set real quick, Jason, help us understand, like, what is an IDE? (laughs) Well, it's integrated development environment, and it's... Solved. Okay, great. Right, sorry. What does that mean? Fix, problem solved. Um, (laughs) No, it's it's a, you know, rather than uh, editor or a collection of, of tools for editing and debugging, developing code. It's a combination of all of those things combined into one integrated piece of software, right? So whereas if you might have Word, Excel, PowerPoint, it is sort of a let's pull all of those into one piece of software approach to, to development. Anything out of that, Cody? You know, I think the other thing that's happened with IDEs over the years is that they've tried to start to emulate runtime environments to help developers be more productive by giving them quick feedback, right? And so that's really where the bloat has, has creeped in. So not to jump ahead too far, but that's the other thing that I think IDEs do, right? Is, mm. is uh, it's, it's essentially the developer's feedback loop as well. Got it. So not only does it give you these sort of building blocks, these Legos that have a bunch of pre-built codes, I don't have to write, you know, I'm not a developer, obviously, but I don't have to write some search algorithm from the ground up. I can kind of use one that's already built. But the challenge then is like, how do you replicate the real runtime environment that's going to live in? And and what does that look like? So so just to play off where I was going to my very crude analogy of these Lego blocks, it would seem sort of natural then if you could just build enough of these Lego blocks, then you've sort of built the whole software, right? And, and you can just kind of like snap these things together and you don't need coding at all. I just, red Lego, yellow Lego, you know, arch Lego makes a castle. Is that is that the right thinking here? Is that the natural evolution? I think that's probably the promise that uh, the software providers would sell you. The challenge with that is the real problem of, of writing code really has nothing to do with, with actually writing code. Right. It's really understanding what you're trying to accomplish. Right? And you know, I, I hear all the time, If not to jump ahead, I'm, I'm sure you're going to ask about these AI code writers right? <laughs> that, that say, like, well, let me, um, you know, let me say in English what I wanted to do, and then you know, these things will go write the code. And, and the challenge of that is like very few people can say in English what they want the thing to do. And, and it's the same with the IDEs. You know, it's like, well, if we, we knew which Lego pieces 
right? We wanted to snap together, right? We, yeah, it would be really quick to snap them together with, with some type of, of tool or automation. The general part is like, we generally don't know what the solution is, right? So we wanted to solve something. It, it, there's an old expression, first solve the problem, then write the code, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the heart of it. We don't really necessarily know what the right answer is. And so it's not, a, it's not a, the challenge of getting d software out faster is not a problem of translating a known solution into code. It's understanding and developing what that solution is in the first place. So to, you know, to use a Microsoft Word analogy, it's not like someone has recorded something in a dictaphone. I don't know if anyone here is old enough to know what a dictaphone <laughs> is. A I'm a little older than the rest podcast? of the, the group, but um, yes. You know, so a YouTube or TikTok channel, someone's provided something and your job is to translate that, you know, uh, you know, type that's that right. up in Word. Mm -hmm. um, that's really not what the job of a programmer is. It, it's to come up with the ideas and the concept, in this analogy, the ideas and the concepts on the, the YouTube or dictaphone. So that's why I, so, I feel like they, they don't really add a lot of time savings, right? If, again, if we're talking about getting things out faster, right, really the, the answer there is, you know, having people that can think through the problems faster. So, so if I take the analogy of Lego, and I, I reckon it's crude here, but your point is, look, it's not so much the Lego building blocks and how to put them together that we're asking developers to do. It's really like imagining what are you going to build out of Legos to begin with? And then how you assemble that is a different question entirely and probably not the hardest part of it. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's saying? right. So that makes sense. And I think, you know, your point about the goal or the job of a developer is to effectively be the, the sort of creative engineer that designs the I don't know, fancy Star Wars Lego set with 10,000 pieces or whatever. And then to figure out like, how do we stitch all these pieces together? It's not so much that somebody's already thought of that or knows how to do that. And they're just asked to now assemble it. Accurate? I think that's accurate. I think, and I think you've seen the market bear that out, right? So to continue to pull on Jason's Microsoft thread, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but if, if that truly was the challenge, right, then we could have solved for that 20 years ago with Visual Basic and ORMs, right? <laughs> you know, just auto-wiring things to databases. And there could have been these large libraries of, you know, uh, VB components that just magically persisted things to databases. And you could have just drag and drop your way to, you know, the next Facebook, you know, 30 years ago, 20 sure. years ago. So it, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's probably just a, you know, it's a crude analogy, but it's an analogy that shows that it, we, we've had the capabilities to do some of those things, but that mm -hmm. truly isn't the problem that the industry needs to solve for. And, and I would say VB did have that, right? And there were, at the time, uh, Visual Basic, uh, there were hundreds of third-party providers that sold widgets to drag and drop uh, into Visual Basic. But mm -hmm. yep. I think that one of the one of the other key points is it's not so much building software isn't so much about getting things to work. You know, although that is an important, <laughs> important quality, there's a, I can't remember anyone who's ever worked with Jason, knows yeah. that he truly believes that Yeah, it's not only about getting it to work. The, um, I can't remember who said that the, the most important quality of the software is that it works, but, um, but there are other factors, security, performance, mm -hmm. scalability, and those things, unfortunately don't have answers right they're uh they're very contextual to the problem 
And it's very hard to write something general purpose that can be reused in all situations. So for example, if something has to be very performant, you know, very scalable, you know, for a high volume, it's, it's going to require a lot of optimization. And that optimization means it gets faster or more scalable at the cost of something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And then maybe ease of use or amount of data or memory it stores. Well, when then, you know, someone doesn't care about that, they care more about memory, right? Like I've got to run this in a low memory environment. I don't really care how fast it runs. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very hard to build one thing to solve all constraints. Sure. And so, as a mathematician, you'll appreciate the, you know, uh, constrained optimization problem. And that's really what it is. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. I guess like the, the question then naturally I think would follow is look, if, if I, if I go hire just the average developer and I said, Hey, build me a system that's optimized for speed or for memory or for cost or for whatever, that problem is I think intrinsically harder than just build me any solution at all. And that's kind of your point. My question then that's sort of like, curious part of that is wouldn't a prepackaged solution that was designed for that thing be better and and is the answer for ides or these low code env- environments generally like actually the way we should be using it is building more specialized legos not generically but more specialized then you plug in the right way is that is that does that make sense it does you know i, I don't know that there's a huge market for that and why not this, I guess well, mark, market's probably the wrong word but you know if i'm a software provider and I provide the widget, mm-hmm. right, that we're going to plug in. My goal is to sell it to everybody. You know, if you want to go to, you know, a new customer and they're like, oh, well, we have a really real problem with performance and scalability. Will, will your component work in a higher scalability environment? No, no, absolutely not. Ours mm-hmm. is for the low performing environment, right? No one wants to say that. And Got so you know, the, the demand for growth uh, of product sales, I think, is going, it's what generally makes them try to solve all you know be all things to everyone which i think is generally true of all software mm-hmm. you know there's probably some aspect of the fact that many times organizations view their problems as you know or their challenges rather as you know incredibly unique as well that kind of mm. you know maybe even from a procurement standpoint lends sure. them towards a bent away from believing that even if it were true and to your point jason it probably isn't but you know i think oftentimes humans are are at least humans in, in large organizations are prone to thinking that their problems are are the unicorn problems yeah and uh you know then you know you have all sorts of other challenges there like discovery right and you have these marketplaces and that works well from a consumer software standpoint but from a from a tooling standpoint it tends to be a bit less effective as as you've seen you know, probably the, the more effective one would be salesforce and some other things like that but even then that's not necessarily low code it is what you were describing a customized or an opinionated implementation mm-hmm. of a set of software tools for a certain purpose okay yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i guess then the natural question is you know I look at the data here and I see that 80% of developers have something in this domain. If, if the problem that we're trying to solve is how to build better software and, and faster, and the right question we should be asking is, is not how do we speed up that process of coding per se, but speed up the process of imagining how to solve it. Why do so many company CIOs buy all these tools that presumably cost real money? Yeah. Well, I would say, but back up before even that, I, you know, yes, I think the imagining how to solve it is a longer process and uh, than than actually coding it. But even that is not the the biggest problem to solve, right? And you know, the the biggest problem to solve is just understanding 
what it is that we want to build because no one ever gets that right up front. And, you know, the, the two approaches to handling that, one is like let's spend a lot of time up front, right, mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, with focus groups and research and all of those type of things and feel like we've got it, you know, 100% right and then go develop it. We're talking about take, like the, the classical Microsoft waterfall development exactly, methodology. Exactly, big right. design up front, right? Yeah, big yeah. design up front. Lots of people in a room thinking about it, talking about it, getting... What's every feature we could potentially want to add and let's, mm-hmm. you know, how would those inter- features interact and let's take all the different permutations of those and have them tested by individuals, you know, in focus groups or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, what I would say, the more agile is, is the term you'll hear way, which is like, well, let's build something small. Let's get it out. Let's push it out to you know, real users and then measure and see what they do and don't like about it in production and then iterate on that mm-hmm. multiple times, you know, and kind of evolve our way instead of designing, you know, it all up front, like let's evolve to it based on real individual feedback, which, you know, I think is probably the way most software companies have realized or, or most companies have realized is the better way to develop software because no one ever gets all of that design up front. Right. And, but then if you think about in that scenario, what has to be done is we have to like have ideas, design them, develop them, test them, mm-hmm. handle any configuration or rollout or deployment and measure them. And so that whole chain mm-hmm. or pipeline, as we would say, has to be built. And building that is what becomes the bottleneck, uh, not so much like the one step of, of translating feature function in the code, but it's how do we get the, you know, something through that entire chain. Got it. Right. And that's the, uh, you know, the, the idea is there. So, so if you're, so I agree with you, by the way, like the, I think that the data bear what you just said, which is two thirds of the things we launched to production at large companies, Microsoft, Uber, Facebook, whomever, they, they fail to move core metrics in a positive way, right? Mm-hmm. Only a third of our best ideas, the ones that make it to production actually drive, drive the business forward. To which I would say like, well then, well then, actually, now I'm confused because isn't the goal then to do that as quickly as humanly possible? And if I have something that maybe not optimized for performance or optimized for memory, I just want to get it out and see if it works. And then if it does, I'll come back and circle around and improve that. Why would that not lead us to a world where it's like more IDEs? You know, Vincent, you make a you make a good point, right? Like that that sounds promising from the logic standpoint. You know, it, that you could have a building block and tool set of good enough 60, 80% solutions that maybe aren't optimized to the nth degree. And we could use those in an agile fashion to launch things out and learn and test quickly. The, the reality there though, is that those things then need to exist inside of a different, you know, a unique environment. Right. And so it's not just, I need a, a, a blue four by four Lego brick or, you know, whatever it's, it's the thing that you need to go insert into that significantly complex operating environment to learn and test the things that you need to know to find out if they are going to move the business forward is then unique to the not only the problem statement that the organization is trying to solve and the value they're trying to bring but also the environment in which it lives right Mm -hmm. and so going back to your point about microsoft uber and facebook right like perhaps microservices could be you know maybe if you think about widgets or or building blocks that way maybe there's something there Mm -hmm. however 
the core value of that thing would be to learn quickly, but it, the, the long term, whoever would be selling that thing, the long term value of it, th that product that they were providing would not actually be the thing that they were able to maximize the most financial benefit from. And I think that factors into it a bit. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say it's, it can also be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, right? tell me more. If something performs poorly, doesn't have a great you know mm. user experience because sure. you're using yeah, the, okay. the pre-built widget like well then you know uh, people are not going to use it i think there's some statistic if a website takes over three seconds to load 50 percent of the people leave it right but okay well if we use one of those and and it doesn't and it doesn't work well what was the reason was it the feature that was wrong or was it the implementation that was wrong right similarly to uh, you know cody's point there last point was if i have you know i'm uber or Forget, forget the big tech companies because they would never do this. But you know, if I'm, I'm an oil company, I'm a retailer, a pharmaceutical company, the environment that I deploy into is likely very different. And so mm -hmm. that the odds that you could even find one, mm -hmm. right, that would work across all three, I think are, are pretty slim. Well, I know, and this goes back to the point you sort of brought up in the intro a little bit about this, this environmental complexity that comes up as well. I know you've both worked at, you know, massive, massive companies, of course, with really complex environments. And I guess the to the naive person, it might seem like, well, can't you just test across all those cases? Like, it, it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard, right? Like, how many different configure, how many different environments could there be? There's only three cloud providers, after all. Like, how hard could that really be? Can you speak to that at all? Just how hard that really does turn into? Yeah, my 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 initial thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree with you, right? Like. The way that plays forward oftentimes with IDEs and, and software building blocks is through contracts, right? Mm -hmm. And people say oftentimes, well, if we could adjust a year contract, then we can very easily integrate these two things. And, you know, that, that statement is true and sounds great. But in practice, in my experience, right, it, it very seldom actually plays through to deliver all of the value that you think you're going to get when you make that statement and kind of wave your hand and say, well, that part will be easy. The, the implementation bleeds through the contract very often. And I've seen you know, just because you've got some data type defined somewhere or some expectation set that one, the implementation doesn't always necessarily behave, you know, to the contract. And, you know, that goes, goes back to the implementation. But other times there are even, to your point about different clouds, provider specific uniquenesses to those things to where mm -hmm. the type of, of date format or the type of decimal or whatever, I'm just giving, you know, sure. random examples that come through could potentially be different based on the type of platform or language that's being used on either side of the contract. And so, you know, that, that kind of just goes back to some of the, maybe even our, our, our contract-driven development muscles as an industry aren't quite where they would need to be to fully realize the value of that, of that suggestion. Got it. Just to give a real practical example, I think what Cody's talking about is, let's assume you're building Teams or Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. You know, video conference call rock. Well, all right, there's 50 different cameras there's 25 different speaker manufacturers. There's 20 different video cards. There's 50 different monitors and, you know, 10 different, you know, keyboard and 30 different mouse manufacturers. Right? How many permutations would I then have to, to test? That would be 50 times 20 times 10 times 50 times 30 times 10, right? Mm -hmm. That's, can't do the math in my head. Uh, but that's a lot, right? It's a big, big number. And, you know, so the way that they do that is they say, well, we're going to define, like, this is the way, what Cody's talking about from a contract perspective, this is the way all monitors will talk, you know, to the applications. This is the way all 
mice will talk to the applications, right? And those those are defined contracts. And the idea then is, well, if we test that we talk to, you know, a printer the right way or a camera the right way, then we can work with any camera. Mm-hmm. That's at least how how software get, gets developed in these really complex environments, and that uh, that is the contract, which works really well, right for things but if it's done but like like you know for a hardware manufacturer operating system manufacturer like like windows that that is what they do they have to work with all of those thousands of different uh, devices and so they're very very good at that but like typical enterprise development it's very very quickly like oh let's go get the payment provider you know let's go be able to send payments from our e-commerce provider to whoever our bank is chase payment tech okay now We've done that. Well, now we're going to go sell in a different country in Canada, where, where, or you know, uh, Germany or somewhere where that payment provider isn't, you know, isn't available. And like, well, what are we going to do now? And and we didn't start, so we didn't start by defining those contracts. And and we've got a lot of legacy code and, and other things that uh, then have to be worked through. And so I think that's what you're talking about in terms of. Yep. Cody, in terms of like, we don't have those muscles and we don't use them uh, very often. So back to the point of like, this is a really hard combinatorial problem in a lot of edge cases and in automating the, the test coverage sounds like that's probably a bigger bang for your buck. But one area I want to explore a little bit with you two today is, is sort of advances in machine learning and in particular natural language generation. Um, perhaps you saw the demo, Microsoft demo note with OpenAI. They effectively have a, at least prototype, it's called a prototype, whereby they they can like in real time build a game through just English, right? So, so if the point is, look, we're, we're not advocating in this world that citizen developers is going to get you very far at all. It sounds like that's not really the problem you need to be solving. It's how do you design good systems? How do you think through that? But is there at least a world in which a, a good engineer who has good thought processes could ask effectively an AI to write the literal code in whatever language happens to be appropriate, perhaps in all the permutations, because again, it can do that quickly and easily, such that you get good outputs. You know, I think I, I for one, am really excited about the prospect of that. Um, and I've seen some interesting use cases, the gaming one that you mentioned, you know, others where you can write on a whiteboard or, or a special pad, and then it, it essentially translates those, translates those designs into, uh, you know, front end code for, for a user interface of some yeah, sort. Like draw, draw it and makes code. Exactly. Yeah. In, in real time, right. And there's machine learning and AI behind those things. And I think, you know, the reason why at least where we're with, where we're at with those tools right now is. They t- the, the commonality I see there is that they have uh, a visual aspect to them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of the challenges around the uh, observability or, or the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the challenges of understanding, you know, what AI is doing, you know, kind of behind the scenes and why it comes to some of the conclusions that it comes to lends itself at least where we're at right now. When you can validate the output with the human eye by either playing the game or looking at the interface, right, then you have a pretty good understanding of what it did and you don't really care as much about why. Now, if you take that to a backend system mm-hmm. and something that, you know, doesn't have a user interface, but it's making decisions about how much to charge or where to route something or, you know, any other number of things that systems do, 
there, there will be edge cases there that could potentially creep in that maybe the AI saw and thought might need to exist. Mm-hmm. You may not love those edge cases. You may not even know they're there unless you go back and inspect all of the code and basically do a code review of your AI. And even then, you know, it, it would likely come to some, some conclusions that your human developers wouldn't. And then you would have this a bit of an arbitration between the tool and the person sure. that would be challenging to work through. And so, you know, going back to your, your overall question, I think the, the visual use cases for that right now are beginning to get interesting, mm-hmm. but the overall visibility challenges around AI and its behaviors uh, make that a bit, a bit, I'm not saying those challenges would never be solved, but uh, as, as they exist right now, they're still pretty significant challenges. It reminds me of one of, I think one of the most important laws in what we do or, or a set of laws called Lehman's law. So Manning Lehman was a, a computer scientist formulated these laws back in the seventies. And I don't, I, I, I would doubt most developers today could tell you who Manning Lehman was or what Lehman's laws were, but they are, um, you know, they've been like empirically studied and proven over and over and over, you know, over the decades or one of the, the min, the most studied laws, I think. Um, and I won't get into them. Like they're actually, we should do a whole uh, podcast on them because they're really interesting. Like one, for example, one of them is like the, the cost of a system. The, the cost of of a system never goes down. People, I see this all the time. People are like, "Well, we'll spend a million dollars developing this system this year, and then next year, well, it'll be all gravy, right?" Well, Lehman's laws would say, "Nope, it's, you're going to spend a million dollars maintaining it next year, right?" Yeah, and so. and the, these are. Some of the really interesting laws, but he in those he, he differentiates between three types of applications, right? What he calls S applications, P applications, and E applications. And S applications are things that have exact specifications, like about what it should do. S is for specification. Mm-hmm. For example, like calculate the orbit of a satellite. Mm-hmm. Right? That is like there's a law, you know, like we know the weight of the satellite, we know the weight. Of like the first principles of physics. Exactly. Of, of, of the planet, and we know how fast the satellite's moving. Like, there's a formula we can figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like, I think those ads are, are very good at doing that, you know. And a P type one would be like, there are things that we can describe the, all the procedures for, even though we don't know exactly what the end outcome is. The, the example there is like a game of chess, mm-hmm. right? We don't know what the, um, you know, we don't know that we could tell someone exactly the the way to play chess, but we can put together the principles and, you know, I think an AI could, could figure out and, and have, right, with Stockfish and many of these. Yep. Go, other, which other, is even harder, apparently. Yeah, yeah, Alpha Zero and all these chess. So I think that's, you know, telling a an AI to do that. But then he talks about e-programs, right, which are written, which are the things that we interact with, right? They're written to perform some real-world activity. E is for environment, right? And thing is that they're really linked to the environment that they're running in mm-hmm. right and in your, when you say environment do you mean like the the, in it, the computer technical environment or do you mean the people who are using yeah, it yeah, yeah, more in you know the people using it and, okay. and the environment around it which can never really fully be specified mm-hmm. is is the problem say well let's write a piece of code right right uh you know hey ai bot you know write me a piece of code that handles discounts like let's say i'm, I'm mm-hmm. doing some type of a point of sale for a a, a restaurant and i want to you know people come in with coupons to get you know dollar off a hamburger or buy one get one free like 
handle those discounts. Mm -hmm. Apply the discounts, handle coupons, and apply coupons to my order total. Mm -hmm. How do you want to do that in, in terms of if I, can I use two? Can I, can I use both or can I only use one mm -hmm. of the discounts? And do I, which one do I apply first? Sure. Well, individual businesses are going to have different answers to that, sure. right? And like, I don't know. And then maybe even if I deploy that software, different locations may have different laws and rules around that. Mm -hmm. And I might want it overridden. And could a person, would a person even be able, you know, if again, you're going to tell the computer, do this and only allow one per, like, could someone even think through all of the different permutations that they needed to, to tell the AI what, how, you know, what are the situations you want it to handle? Mm -hmm. Right. And that, like, even that simple discount stacking problem becomes incredibly complex and so if, if you think about well now all the other things that have to happen to run you know to process a, or an or you know an order in a restaurant and you know pay someone's check from things breaking down oh the shake machine doesn't work right and you know we want to substitute that for that it's really impossible i i think um for at some point for an ai to to really handle all that now for the for the first two class of problems, sure, I think that'd be really helpful. And and as in maybe an initial generate me something to get going, or handle some specific like search algorithm or something that I need to do. I I think there there are places for that, but the E type systems, the environment is just too complicated to deal with. Yeah, I, you know, as you're talking through that example of the discounts, I wonder if you could feed AI a couple of years worth of transaction data, historical transaction data, and tell it to look at the discount patterns and, and the coupon codes that are associated with those discounts and it could come up with them. However, then, you know, certify to your auditors in, in the finance department that the, that the discount engine works correctly, right? Like that's, that's goes back to the observability challenges, right? Like yeah. good luck getting, you know, any sort of auditing firm to sign off on, on that. We're not, w without again, going back and inspecting the code line by line, which then you could have just written it, you know, sure. yourself in the first place. That's a really interesting point for sure. And man, it's a tough challenge. And, and here's what, here's where my mind goes. You know, my wife has a, a cute little doll business, Dallas doll co website that I built. And I look, I'm not good at building websites, right? What did I do? I didn't write an HTML. I just went to, you know, one of the standard providers and drag and drop and fill out a few text box. And sure enough, she has an e-com site. It accepts, you know, Apple pay, it accepts credit card. I don't know what any of that could looks like and and it worked. So, so my counterpoint to both of you is a little bit of like, help me understand, clearly there are some cases that seem to do okay with low code, or in this case, effectively no code, right? I, I mean, I didn't code hardly anything in this case. Um, I set up a DNS record. I think that was the most complicated thing I had to do. Um, I think it comes back to a little bit of what you're going with that, Jason, like what, what type of problem is this generically? But maybe you can just comment on, on your views on that. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's a good distinction. I'm glad you brought it up because I think you know, Cody and I, are probably a little biased in that we deal with large, you know, complex software for big enterprises all day. And yeah, I, I do think for that kind of thing, there's, you know, site generators or, 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 or commodity use cases. Yeah, commodity software, use cases. Right? Sure. And, and I, I don't, I think that those probably work fine. Mm -hmm. Right. But I, I also don't think that, um, you know, you Vincent, as you're setting up your wife's doll business worry that, you know, 
about the speed of, of <laughs> development, right? Like in, in other words that, that like, well, this provider can get me the website up in 10 minutes and that one can get it up for me in, in five minutes. I'm going to go with that one. Right. And so, sure. yeah, I think, I think for all of those commodity cases there, you know, there, those things are fine. I think we're probably talking more around, you know, for the audience, for the, the podcast, which is, you know, enterprises looking to develop product, you know, where, where our comments are more, or more That's aimed. Right. Yeah, you know, I think the the maybe stack that got closest to achieving the level of mass commoditization that you're talking about, and we were mentioning this a bit before we started recording here, was WordPress, right? Mm-hmm. So think about think about I'll pick out social networks again, but think about how close in functionality a post and a comment thread on WordPress is versus Facebook or Instagram or other social network, right? And yet those things aren't built on WordPress, but sure. they absolutely could have been, sure. right? And and so, you know, I think that just drives back to, you know, when you are dealing with software at scale like that, mm-hmm. the the commodity choice isn't always, it's it's where the rough edges of the building blocks begin to show themselves. And I think that it goes back to that environment point you made earlier, right, Cody? Which is like, these these enterprise environments, Fortune 100, 500, whatever, these these are not simple use cases. They're touching a lot of systems from a lot of different people, lots of data involved, et cetera. One of the things I know that's happening just generically is this this move to remote development environment, right? Like everything's in the cloud, a developer shows up and you know, they give them a crappy laptop because they're not gonna use it. They're gonna they're gonna develop on the cloud, everything computes gonna happen there. It's just a screen and a keyboard effectively. Does that begin to solve any of this from your perspective? You know, I, it, as you're, as you're describing that, you're right, that is happening, but it, it also a bit reminds me of, you know, the, the tail end of mainframe development that I got to be a part of in my career. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, the cloud was just in the, uh, in the data center, right. In, in the, on the mainframe, um, you know, it, it, it could potentially, however, I think when you begin to, uh, there would need to be, so if I were to, to pull that through, Mm-hmm. There would need to be, I think, a significantly higher degree of adoption of platform as a service type cloud offerings, where you could have significantly more, um, a, a significantly more standardized deployment environment, right? Versus what many of these larger organizations have today, and and likely will continue to have for for some economic reasons that may exist in the future, of. Uh, a much more customized, uh, you know, kind of built for a need type of environment, even in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And so where I'm going with that, and what I mean by that is, you know, the these cloud providers don't give away these platform as a service solutions for free. There are costs associated with them. And when you achieve a certain scale as an organization or a business, you can afford to, you know, implement some of those things yourself and save the money on the back end. And that's why, you know, again, your wife's commodity business, the cloud I view from a platform as a service standpoint, a bit of a step it's not commodity, but it's a bit more commodity infrastructure, right? Sure. And then you've got you've got the highly custom infrastructure pieces. And so, going back to your question about IDEs and how that relates, right? The the uh, when you are delivering designing and delivering software at scale for a large organization, it is likely that the environment that that software is deployed to is going to be highly tailored and fit for purpose there. And I think that makes building reusable tools that can be leveraged as building blocks across you know you know very challenging to do. That makes sense. I probably am the only person here that really likes ISPF. So that's an old mainframe integrated <laughs> facility. So, uh, you might be the only person who knows what that is. Yeah, Jackson. exactly. But, uh, I think that's right. I think the, I, I'm a big fan of some of those remote, uh, you know, whether it be GitHub code spaces or other 
remote development tools, although they're designed again, all software is designed to solve some problem, right? And they're, what they're, they're not designed to solve speed necessarily. Okay. They're designed to solve the problem of security and privacy, right? Mm. And so we keep things in the environment and, and may, I guess arguably you could say speed in terms of like, well, developers don't have to set up environments, right? But like the environments are set up. So I do get some efficiency about having to set up specific environments, but it's really around like I keep everything uh, in my environment and uh, can then d deploy it on the same environment. So I don't get issues that happen a lot in development where like it works on my machine, but it yeah. doesn't work when I, cause my machine is different from where it actually deploys. And so those are really the problems to solve. I, again, I think those are really valid or, or valuable problems to solve, mm -hmm. but I don't know that other than maybe setup time that they, they solve a huge speed problem. Got it. Right? And again, because I don't think the problem is necessarily, or the tool that are, is used to write code is necessarily the problem to speed. It's the other things back to the, the discount stacking. It's the, well, we have to talk with, all of the restaurant owners and figure out how they want to handle it. That takes weeks. And we have to figure out, talk to our auditing department and validate that. Yes, here are all the different combinations and that yes, that is valid the way we have done it. That's what takes the time. Like mm -hmm. actually like writing the code to stack discounts is, Got it. you know, it's a few sure. days, right? But it's, it's not easy code, but it's a few days and, but it's a few days you know, it's a few, you know, out of a six week uh, effort, right? It's two or three days and like, oh, we get better tools or AI and like we cut that two days down to one day, mm -hmm. right? But you all know, the non-functional stuff, that's it's, the it's still all the time. exactly. And it's still, you know, we cut one day out of six weeks. Makes so sense. what? Makes sense. So as we, as we begin to wrap up here, if I just try and play back what I've heard so far, and then I'm curious what, if you guys would add to this or what you'd recommend uh, to CIOs generically. Um, it sounds like the answer is speeding up code is uh, programming and developing code is, is maybe a bit of a red herring. It's kind of not the problem we ought to be focused on. Like, yes, there might be ways to do it a little bit more efficiently, a little bit more securely, more uniformly. Yes, that's probably beneficial. But actually, the big problem is how do you think through the environment? How do you think through how are you going to solve this across all the business rules, all the logic you could have? And how to do that in a uniform way that delivers performance and memory or whatever your business need is in that case. And that's the hard problem that these IDEs, these low-code environments, don't actually solve. And actually, to the point of technical debt, might make it a little bit harder. But for some problems, in some domains, it could work, and it is probably the right thing to do. Is that generally right, or what would you add to that? I would add one thing to that is, is and that's really the, you know, what we really want to do, you know, from idea inception out to in production and measure and that, you know, get that feedback and, and iterate is, is really the time we're trying to reduce. Right. So I wouldn't even care if, if that time reduced by half, no one would care if the actual development time doubled. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, that's what we're trying to reduce and, and getting that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is just to get feedback for the product, but also it, it does make things, you know, that kind of, uh, instant feedback does make even fixing code and problems and, you know, fixing bugs and, and addressing design faster because you have less time, you know, from when you developed it to when you have to fix it. Like if, if I see something and I don't see it again for six months, like 
I, I might as well be starting over, right? You know, like, but if I do it and it gets out and a bunch of people have a problem with it and, you know, three days from now I get a bug, I can, I can pretty much remember what I did three days ago. Four, maybe not, but three, yes. <laughs> um, but so it's, it's about shortening that overall time frame, and there's so many things in that time frame. Environment is one that have to be addressed, but, you know, whether it's automation or legal or requirements or, or whatever, there's so many things, and it's really trying to cut down that whole cycle. Understood. Yeah, I, th I think piggybacking off of Jason's point, right, like the, the – a common symptom that I see in organizations that are really focusing on the, the actual time to code, right, software is, is as he was saying, right, the, the challenges in fully agreeing and understanding and aligning on what the software needs to do. And so then what you have is uh, typically a fairly waterfall process of software, you know, design, as we talked about the big design up front phenomenon. And so going back to your point, you know, if I'm if I'm talking to a CIO about how they could truly become more effective at at delivering value to their customers, you know, quickly, then then the answer is probably to try to optimize for the whole instead of the individual parts, right? And so, if you think about the individual parts of the software delivery chain that we've been talking about, it could be, uh, you know, an operations team, a finance team, a technology team, a design team, and oftentimes, in the event to optimize all those people's time, they work serially and not in parallel sure. and because if they worked in parallel there might be a certain week where that designer didn't have anything to do for a few hours right mm -hmm. and the the challenge though is when you stack those things serially you create these weight cues that add significant time to the overall value delivery and so i think again optimizing so so my point is don't look to optimize every hour of every person in that value delivery chain look to optimize the overall value delivery chain and that might mean that some some of that is lossy a bit in the middle but the whole of the team moves significantly faster i think that's a super important point uh i know we're trying to wrap up but i just want to hit that again it's the the handoff problem is when we when we do try to optimize things tend to get serial i i wanted to tell the story we had a client and uh, in order to get software from idea to running in production, there were 110 people who had to touch it, right? Uh, now, that has you know, got its own problems, but like, you know, it, in a big complex environment, you got legal and, and, and you know, it, it can be a number of people that, that have to look at things and say yes. And so to the serial aspect of what if that sat in the queue you know, every handoff between me and I, I'll send it over to the next person to review. It each queue just took one day, mm -hmm. right? Sure. It was it'd be a hundred and ten days before you could get yeah. you know an anything, extra quarter just yep. wasted. You know, anything done. Easy. And so there's there's two arguments there, right? One is like don't have a hundred and ten of them, but you know even if it's thirty, sure, right, or twenty, which is I think reasonable people that have to be involved, then then how do you parallelize that or keep them working together, these ideas, cross-functional teams and that kind of stuff? I think the good news is that I think manufacturing and supply chains have been working on solving that problem for us, and there's some good methodologies to, to approaching it. And I think the answer, it sounds like, is as the CIO in particular, it, I think it's probably very tempting to get focused on the stuff that's comfortable and easy and well understood, which is about the coding. That's how many CIOs make their job. They were coders or developers at one point, right? Yep. But really, zoom out take that more holistic organizational process view and there's probably a lot to be done there. Well, 
Again, thank you both. Awesome as always, Jason. Appreciate it. And Cody, this was fun. I appreciate you coming and sharing your insights here with us. For our listeners, uh, if you'd like to learn more, please visit us at the insights page at credera.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join again. Again, thanks, guys. Thanks, Vincent. Thanks, Vincent.